This evening, I want to continue our investigation into the three ways of seeing, to these three liberating ways of seeing, that when we understand and we see clearly how things are unfolding, that there is a possibility of freedom and liberation and not being caught. So we've talked, Donald talked at length last night about the impermanence and how this undependability of things, that sometimes we get stuck in the idea that things are going to stay put, that they're going to... Mm. not move around, and they do. I remember when I started teaching, people would often, I'd notice people would put on their uh, forms uh, about what was happening. They'd say they were in transition. And at first I thought, oh, okay, they're in transition. And then after a while I realized, yeah, we're all in transition. (laughs) And it's rough because we are. It's constantly changing. And this constantly changing nature of things is unsatisfactory. It is not pleasing for us. It puts us off balance. And this is part of that, the major source of the dukkha. Because this unpredictability leads to an unsatisfactory series of events. We view it as unsatisfactory. And we're reactive to it. It's not what we want. And in the midst of all this, who's experiencing the unpredictability? Who's having an opinion that it's unsatisfactory? Me. Me. And this is why the Buddha pointed to this way of understanding where this, of anatta, of not-self. But it's, as uh, Donald sort of pointed to last night, he started on the, you know, it's confusing. I'll add one. He named one of those um, Jewish quips, and here's another one. If there is no self, whose arthritis is this? The Buddha was once asked, and I think I, hopefully it's here. Piece of paper that didn't make it, but I can tell you anyway. Um, The Buddha was once asked by this wanderer, Vashagota, came to the Buddha And he'd heard about this not-self anatta teaching, and he came to the Buddha and he said, okay, I want to hear it from the, the guy. Is there a self? The Buddha didn't say anything. And Vashagoda waited a bit, and then Vashagoda said, well, is there not self? Buddha didn't say anything. Finally, the guy's like, okay, this isn't working, and left. 
And his cousin, an attendant, Ananda, was there. And Ananda said to the Buddha, like, this guy, he was asking you questions. Why didn't you answer? And the Buddha said, Vashagota was confused. And if I had tried to explain it to him, he would have gotten even more confused. This doesn't bode well for me trying to explain it tonight, does it? (laughs) So, it is one of the paradoxical pieces in the teachings to try to understand. And one of the important things about it is that ultimately... The it does help to talk about it. It does help to try to intellectually get a get some sense of it, but it really is a place that we it, that of understanding and realization that comes to us on a different level than in our mind than the uh, mental cons- construct. So this evening, my intention is to try to offer some of the construct, but that will, either you'll recognize where you've had these experiences or when they come along, you'll sense, oh yeah, this is the activity of selfing occurring here. And all of it is in service of what the Buddha taught, which is suffering and the end of suffering. That's why this is important. It's useful to come back keep coming back to that, that this anatta teaching is a skillful means. It's not meant to be a philosophy or some sort of um, metaphysical truth. So one of the things that is worth right here at the beginning naming is there isn't a sen- there is no self there that we're getting rid of. It's not like there's some physical entity, this self, and if you just do your practice right, you can just leave it there on the cushion and walk away. It's not something to be gotten rid of. It's only a concept. It's a concept in our mind. So it's not like when you lose the sense of self, you're going to cease functioning or that something really dramatic is going to happen. It's that you won't have the, we drop the strong belief in the concept in our own minds. And the most important part is that this sense of self creates a kind of territory that we're in a sometimes more continuous than others, but this arising need to defend this territory of me. And it's a relentless project. Have you noticed? Taking care of me is endless and it makes us suffer because there's always more that can be done to take care of me, to make the world a better place for me. And 
also the thing that happens a lot is there's a lot of dissonance between the idea of me and how I think I should be and how I should be in the world and what's actually happening. So we develop this virtual version of me and my relationship to the world. And then we go through the world and it's not happening like that. And we're not like that. And we create self-judgment of ourselves and criticisms and feeling like we're not enough. And we also criticize the world and don't like what's happening there because it's not lining up. And underlying all that is an idea about how it should be for me. Sometimes it's talked about that the dissonance between experience and our self-concept is dukkha. That's the dukkha. And when this Dogen says, when the self goes forward and fills the world, that is delusion. So when all these ideas about me and my territory go out and you're viewing the whole world through that, that's delusion. When the world comes in and fills the self, that is awakening. When we're available, when we're not so busy defending, then the world can flow through us without resistance. We recognize this flowing relationship with everything that's happening. And we can be awake to that truth. One of the quotes in your study packet, so you have it for future reference, about not-self, is and this is from the Buddha, saying, this is how one attends inappropriately. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What was I in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what? What shall I be in the future now? Or else one is inwardly perplexed about the immediate present. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where is it bound? Have you had any version of any of these thoughts? Maybe you, you kind of spruced them up a little so they didn't seem so uh, impossible to answer. But, you know, oh, what am I going to do after lunch? Oh, what did I do this morning? Oh, how was my sit? How will my sit be tomorrow? What do I need to eat to make my sit better? If I eat this, then will my sit be better? Can you feel how much of our thinking... Uh, most of our thinking is involved in this. And it's all around these ideas about I. And, uh, you know, underneath this, there is a certain element of like, what am I doing? How, how, How did I get here and what am I doing? Rumi says it very quickly, succinctly. He says, 
Where did I come from? What am I doing here? I have no idea. (laughs) And sometimes this confusion, what am I doing here, manifests in this selfing activity. We're just trying to make it as pleasant as possible. And we learn a lot of strategies. We start strategizing when we're young. And this is totally understandable. We start trying to figure out, how do I make this world work? It's really confusing. I mean, think about it. We come into this world as these little beings that can't take care of ourselves and like don't know how it works. And it, it takes us a couple of years or whatever it is, 18 months to figure out how to walk and then longer to figure out how to talk and communicate to anybody. We start out, you know, it starts out pretty darn confusing. And then the whole world that we're in as children We do the best we can. We come up with all sorts of strategies of how do I take care of me? How do I make this work? And we keep going with those. One of the primary fun, we all have our personal strategies, but one of the fundamental strategies that we share is, and Donald brought this in yesterday, is trying to get the world to stand still. With using language is one of the main ways we do that in our conceptual view of the world. The tree, it's just, it's a tree. But by doing that, we contain it into this limited view. And so, Same thing, me. I have a concept of me and then trying to maintain that. And I have a concept of you, whoever you are. I get a few little data points. I mean, even people you know really well, family members, friends, you get a few data points and then you construct that partner or that person out of those data points. I know Tom. He's like this. And it's a very limited view of Tom or whoever. And there's a fundamental confusion going on here that we view the world as a series of nouns, including ourselves. There's no nouns here. Everything is moving. It's all verbs. It's all verbs. And so just as we isolate things, we're denying their, this constant impermanence. And we do that with ourselves. And this is the fundamental understanding of anatta, that we are not nouns. We are unfolding processes, 
constantly changing, constantly impacted by everything that's happening. And anytime we try to grab a hold and get things to stay put, we're going to suffer. Another way that the self has been described as an argument with what is. That whatever is happening, that our sense of this selfing activity arises when we don't like what's happening or we want more of particular things to happen or we have an idea it should be, you know, I or the world should be different. So the good news about that there is good news, is that there's a lot of moments that you aren't arguing and that the selfing activity isn't happening. But we tend to gravitate towards and pay attention to that selfing activity with what's wrong, what needs to change. So this, what needs to happen? What is it that this self wants? I like it. Uh, I heard recently somebody describe it as what the selfing activity is oriented to is trying to have all pleasant experiences happening at all six sense gates at all times. (laughs) Very simple project. not going to happen but we keep trying the other thing that's happening is that this sense of this selfing activity gives us a certain kind of like okay things are stable I know who I am I can feel me here this is me going through the world And even though everything else is changing and everything, I'm solid. Tenzin Palmo put it this way once. She said that your eye doesn't care whether you're happy or sad. It just wants to feel your me-ness. Sometimes we can feel this. One of the places I notice this that is very tangible to feel this is when you know that you're right about something. Think about something you know you're right about. Can you feel a sort of a sense of solidity come in? A kind of like, a real like, I'm here and I know. It's a very interesting experience. And there's something about that that is very satisfying. We all know how, it, how hard that moment is when you go, mm, maybe I'm not right. And there's kind of this, the, the, but as soon as it happens, it's actually pretty nice, isn't it? Because you can feel you no longer have to defend that territory. Some of the things we've talked about with samadhi, 
where we have experiences of being in the flow of an activity in music or art or sport, one of the things that is happening there also with the samadhi is there often is not as much selfing activity. And that's one of the big reliefs about it. We're not having to worry about the I. It kind of disappears, right? So that gives us a little taste of what being in the world without the eye is like. Unfortunately, that particular version is ultimately unsatisfying because it, it ends. It's dependent on the activity. One of the words that's used in, the, in this conversation about the self and anatta is sakyaditi. I like the word. It's kind of fun to say, sakyaditi. And what it means is self-view. Self-view, self-identification. Who I'm making myself up to be in each moment. And Ajahn Samedo puts it this way, a sense of oneself as a separate person identified with body, memories, thoughts. It's a habit. Selfing is a habit. And this identification, you know, we are, we do have histories and thoughts and personal um, capabilities and difficulties. But the challenge comes with the identification that believing that's who we are. You know, like if I sit up here and I get solidly identified with being a teacher, there's going to be some suffering around that. Everybody's probably had the experience of what happens when you identify strongly, say, with a particular kind of work, and then it goes away. Or you identify as being, this is one that I've noticed, fortunately with some humor, identify as being um, physically quite strong and capable. And as when uh, about 15 years ago, I had a back injury. And it was interesting watching that identification have to be completely let go of. It wasn't there. But it's often a challenge. Think for yourself right now of identifications that you've had, ways you've defined yourself and thought, this is who I am, and how when that has shifted, it's been challenging. Often we don't see the ways that we self until we see the dukkha in it. So I want to explore a few places where we create these selfing habits. And one of them is our personal history, our psychological and personal history around, you know, the conditions under which we grew up, ideas we had about ourselves when we were growing up. 
These may include very real circumstances. This is not to deny that things happen and we live from those experiences. It's not, we all come from different ethnic, cultural, financial, individual circumstances, some of which may have been very difficult. And we've been influenced by all of that. And it's helpful to fully acknowledge that this is our history, our experience, that we're seeing things from here. And this is particular. it's important for all of us, but it's particularly important to recognize that uh, where we have seen the world, what we've experienced as we've come up influences how we're seeing the world, you know, like how we put things together. If we've come up in, you know, in the, the, some Western view of science, if we've come up, grown up in an indigenous view, if we've grown up in a community that is where there's systemic racism or oppress, institutionalized oppression, the view from there is very distinct and real, completely real. And so to say that it, we're not identified with something doesn't deny the reality of those circumstances that have impacted us. This is really important because sometimes this understanding, this uh, not-self can be misinterpreted as somehow flattening that there's not a diversity of experiences. And that's not at all the case. But we also have the opportunity to realize that we are not, that in spite of this history, in spite of all of that, or even because of it, we're a process unfolding not a separation, that we are the result of all of that. And the process is still unfolding. So we can develop from our history various habits of selfing various ways that we identify, beliefs that we carry. A couple of um, simple examples that I want to mention is that, you know, like somebody, if somebody has a physical challenge, they might view themselves as, and identify with that. And it's really interesting when you meet somebody and interact with them who appears to your, you know, to my eyes to have a physical challenge. And you can see they don't identify that way at all. And it really points, and I'm thinking of a particular man I know who was a paraplegic and was in a wheelchair. And I met him on a bike ride, so that gives you a start. But he, he was a, he was a physician's assistant 
and did um, aid work in Africa. He clearly was not identifying as somebody who couldn't do things because of the physical part. So there was a great, there's a video online that was really interesting. And it was a video about running or about the, um, the beliefs that we acquire as we grow older. And they asked some young children, first very young, and they did it at different ages. And they asked some young children to run like a girl. And the early, the young ones, boys and girls, demonstrating how you run like a girl, were just like full steam ahead. And you could see like they'd put on this face of determination and go. And then at a certain age, they'd ask them, okay, run like a girl. And they'd do this funny floppy thing. As if somehow, at some point, girls stop being able to run and they sort of flop around. Wow. And then that becomes part of the identity, part of the story that we pick up from our environment. So these habits that come in, Sometimes, you know, if we've had a difficult childhood, we can identify as someone, as a victim in some way. And this does not, I have to say it again, this does not deny the seriousness and the um, incredible suffering of being Um, abused or oppressed or anything like that, that is this suffering that we didn't create that comes to the person. And yet, is, what is it like to take the, to move past that and not identify as that person who was oppressed or um, suffered? was a victim of abuse or something. In fact, to realize that all of that has impacted us and we carry the truth and the pain of it, but we are not limited inside our own mind. Now, again, not to deny that things are uneven in this world. Some people definitely have different circumstances and different opportunities. And that's not what I'm, I'm not, um, not intending to deny that. I'm talking about the internal experience. One of the place, another example of this is, um, I was really, uh, colleague and friend of mine talked about his experience of discovering as a gay man 
the extent of the homophobia that he was carrying and how incredibly painful that was and what a shock it was to him to realize he had so picked up a vibe of, you know, the conditions, the influences of the culture. And this is very, this is a really painful place of how we are influenced because then there's a self here and a rejection of the self simultaneously, an identification and a judgment of the identification. All of it, the part that is keep coming back to is that all of these things are happening, but they're not happening to someone. They're not happening to a solid person that is a solid thing that doesn't change. That's, there's not something there in the middle that everything's happening to. It's an unfolding process that has all these different influences happening to it. We're in this continuous relationship with everything, with our own genetics, our own personal history, with the culture, with everything flowing through and in us. And so one of the major sources of confusion is this split, that territory I was talking about, the self and the other. Because it's not like that. There is not a sharp line, a dividing point. I don't end at my skin. Everything that happens in this room affects me. What everything that happens in the world some things more impactful than others. And very important in this is to realize it's not your fault that you are impacted by the world, that the way you are formed, the thoughts you have, you didn't make that happen. It's just the causes and conditions unfolding. Causes and conditions unfolding. And many of them are difficult. But they're impersonal. And by impersonal, I don't mean that they, they affect you. But they're not happening as a result of some... Uh, They're not happening to a specific you and they're not happening because of something that you have caused, like some fault of yours. You know, I think that like a really good example of this is sometimes to watch your thoughts. And sometimes we can really identify with our thoughts. We think, oh my God, I can't believe I just had that thought. You didn't make that thought happen. It arose, especially those initial thoughts, like they just pop in your head. Where did they come from? 
They're the result of all sorts of conditions. And yet, to be willing to own that. So like a good play, a good example of this is to see all that we have all these hidden biases. We have a lot of um, ways that we carry um, bias in our system that it's not our fault that we have it. We've inherited it from the culture. And yet, we're responsible for what we do with it. This, the, this is sometimes talked about, you know, I think the phrase is implicit bias, that there are people that we have a, a bias towards or against, that this, it's like instantaneous. And then realizing, whoa, that is not my fault that that arises. That's the result of everything that's flowed in and out of me. And yet, I'm responsible for what I do with that and how I work to undo that. This is the, the challenge of institutionalized um, racism and um, how we all carry the whole culture in us and then how we step in to take responsibility for that. But it's not our fault. That's why people often say, but I'm not prejudiced. Yeah, you're not prejudiced. You're just carrying the implicit bias of the whole culture with you. And in this split not just there, but everywhere, we keep coming back to how does, if we're split, we have the attitude, how does the world serve me? I want to come back to that. How does the world serve me? Have you ever noticed, I've noticed this, that if I'm on a bicycle, the cars are a problem and they're in the way and they, you know, they're not doing it right. If I'm in the car, the bicycles are not doing it right and they're in the way. It's like so completely from the point of view of me. Philip Moffat has the great phrase. He says um, that we're, in the, we're always being the star of our own movie. Very apt. And in this focus, we're focused on the me, the star. What do we do with this? (laughs) Um, From the Buddha, he says, he's talking to Sariputta, uh, one of his senior disciples. He says, well then, Sariputta, this is how the training should be done. Concerning this body with its consciousness, let there be no self-centered imaginings of I and mine and no such bias. With regard to external objects, let there be no self-centered imaginings of mine and no such bias. We shall then abide in the attainment of the heart's liberation 
and the liberation by wisdom. When we drop this tendency to this selfing activity, we drop with it a whole lot. All the management, all the managing of how others should act, how we should act. It doesn't mean we drop the ethical behavior because that comes from compassion. That doesn't come from maintaining the territory of I. That comes from connection. When we're not managing the territory of I, our hearts can open. We can see that there's a whole lot more going on than me. And we're freed up to be in that bigger world and to connect and to care and to, to act in an inclusive way. I'm going to read you a poem from one of my favorite poets, Rosemary Watula Tromer. She calls it as the broken dew. May I be wrong. May I come to you without my books, without my rules, without my shoulds. Let me always arrive at your door with empty hands. Let me meet you with my pockets full of blank, not convinced of anything except the possibility of everything. Let me be wrong. Let me not label anyone a liar. Let me bottom out. What is it in us that wants to be right? I have seen it turn a whole month, a whole life into ice. I have felt the chains of certainty. I have worn the shackles of listen to me. Let me be wrong. Let there be chinks in my belief. Let there be splinters in my conviction. Look how alone it is in this hour when I am so perfectly right. May my rules go begging. May my imperatives learn to crawl. May my righteousness hold an empty bowl. May my musts all redden to rust. And may I be wrong as the wrongers are wrong. And may I unknow and unlearn and unselve and love as the lovers love. Beautifully pointing to this process of breaking down the territory. And a huge amount of it is this willingness to step into the unknown, to step into the realization that everything is shifting and changing, and to build our capacity to be with that, to realize we can be with the impermanence of things, that it is possible, and that we can learn to respond instead of being reactive. That the reactivity comes from the defending of self, this selfing activity. And when we're not selfing, when we're not defending territory of me, ah, there's so many options and so much space. 
and we have the possibility of responding. This is from Dilgo Kense Rinpoche. He says, the everyday practice is simply to develop a complete acceptance and openness to all situations and emotions and to all people, experiencing everything totally without mental, mental reservations and blockages so that one never withdraws or centralizes into oneself. This produces a tremendous energy that is usually locked up in the process of mental evasion and a general running away from life experiences. I'm going to read it again. This is a big, big piece of wisdom here from him. The everyday practice is simply to develop a complete acceptance and openness to all situations and emotions and to all people, experiencing everything totally without mental mental reservations and blockages so that one never withdraws or centralizes into oneself. This produces a tremendous energy that is usually locked up in the process of mental evasion and a general running away from life experiences. Reggie Ray says, to take a consistent position on anything, we have to factor out large amounts of experience that would call such consistency into question. Back to that way that we just... To maintain this view, we have to take a few data points and solidify it, conceptualize it, grab a hold of it, fixate on it. And the invitation to let everything come and go, to not try to stop it, to realize that it's all coming through us, to be completely open. This is the invitation of anatta. And to say that the selfing activity keeps going, it will keep happening but to let it happen without confusion. So what would that mean? So I need to go down to the dining room and get lunch. We can just see that happen arising as the influence of the fact that it's noon, that there was a bell, that there's a grumble in the stomach. There doesn't need to be any I there. It's just the series of causes and conditions arising. The freedom in that is that then if another cause and condition occurs, you're walking down there and um, 
they don't have any power and they didn't make any lunch. That can just feed right in and be another cause and condition without it being an affront to me. When something happens that is challenging or difficult here on retreat, I encourage you to really pay attention to all the different conditions that might have come together both in the immediate situation and in the reaction that you might have. And see if all of that can happen without any eye. A really simple way of uh, this playing with this is even just in hearing my voice right now. You can say, I'm listening. Or you could just say, hearing is happening. Understanding is happening. It can all continue to happen. Nothing's going to stop or cease without the, with the dropping of the identification with I. Except a lessening of dukkha, a lessening of grabbing a hold and stopping, trying to stop what is unstoppable. Sokni Rinpoche says, in response to that initial question, self, not self, he says, I'm not saying you're not real, just not that real. (laughs) And the Buddha was almost equally elusive. He says, in whatever way they conceive of self, the truth is ever other than that. What might be the result of letting go of the sense of self, just even momentarily? I encourage you to investigate this by watching that moment of freedom that when, like when you go from the being right to letting go, that belief, when you go from, I need this to change, to just sort of like, yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, there's a preference here for that to change, but really, do I need that? Do I need to build that territory on that? And notice the moment when you let go of that. There's a little moment of freedom there. A moment of freedom. And it happens again and again, many times a day. So I'm going to end with a very famous quote from Dogen. It says, To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by 10,000 things. To be enlightened by 10,000 things is to, be, is to free one's body and mind and those of others until no trace of enlightenment 
remains. And this no trace continues endlessly. So let's sit together for a couple minutes. Thank you for listening to the Dharma. And we'll come back in half an hour for um, metta practice with radiating metta. We'll do a guided meditation tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.